This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. You would pull in and there'd be this this kind of two-story house which sort of anchored the homestead. And well, a lot of the focus, I think, stemmed from our, our religious conversion, which emphasized uh, a higher way, right? A higher this is home. the Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast Network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. The nearest store was probably 25 miles away, so we had to do all those things that are sort of coming back now, like batch cook and menu plan, you know, make a plan because, well, we couldn't just pop out and and pick up what we needed. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. When self-isolating began in earnest, Cookbook author and writer Julia Tertian started posting food writing prompts on Instagram. Things like, what food did you used to not like, but now you do, and why? Or if you could make a pie or a cake for someone just because, who would you make it for? Or how about this one, my favorite? Who is the oldest person you know? Give them a call or email them and find out their favorite thing to eat when they were young. My grandfather, my mother's father, died when he was 71. He grew up first in the American Midwest and then later in Saskatchewan, Canada. He was the oldest of six boys and one girl, all handsome Swedish people in my imagination. His youngest brother is 90 and lives in Los Angeles. A few years ago, my sister and I were in Los Angeles visiting our friend Katie. We casually mentioned to Katie that we had a great uncle living not too far away. And Katie, being Katie, said, well, let's go meet him. Great Uncle Larry greeted us at the door. His broad shoulders told the story of his football days and his sparkling blue eyes, his smile, looked exactly like my grandfather. We stayed a few hours and we met his wife, Alaria, and he shared stories from his childhood. Larry was just a kid when my grandfather left home, but they kept in touch over the years and now we keep in touch with great uncle Larry. I didn't have great uncle Larry's phone number, So instead, I asked him over email, what was your favorite thing to eat when you were young? And this is what he said. My favorite thing to eat as a child was Saskatoon berry pie. Saskatoon berries are much bigger and sweeter than regular blueberries. Perhaps because we had so much fun when annually our family of eight and friends' families jammed into the open box of my dad's 1937 two-ton Ford truck and drove, no seatbelts, for an hour or so north of Regina to a rare forested area where Saskatoon bushes thrived. My dad, mom, and older brothers and sister picked many buckets full and I ate more than I collected in the coffee can hanging from a string around my neck. The next day, after enjoying Saskatoons with cream for breakfast, we all helped mom bake the pies and can dozens of mason jars full of berries to eat for the winter. Sincere thanks, Lindsay, for bringing to my mind that joyful, even tearful memory. 
Well, sincere thanks to great uncle Larry for taking me to the Canadian prairies in the summer to a memory my grandfather would have also shared. And thanks to Julia Tertian for prompting this memory in the first place. I love how food memories can launch us into childhood. We all need a taste of childhood right now. A time when life was less anxious, simpler, and berries were served for breakfast, topped with cream. Today on The Food Podcast, I talk with M.A. Wimbush Burke, cookbook author and creator of the blog Simple Bites. M.A. grew up on a homestead in the Yukon, where in the summer, the sun barely sets, and in the winter, the nights are long. This is where M.A. learned how to ferment foods and make sourdough, where she honed her baking skills on the family's big oak kitchen table, and where she fell in love with food all without electricity, running water, or refrigeration. Together with their parents, John and Zoe Wimbush, they share the story of how they ended up in the Yukon and how that chapter of life has informed M.A.'s life today. This episode will be a little different. We're working remotely here at Village Sound. This episode is coming to you from my closet via the Yukon and M.A.'s lakeside house in Nova Scotia. The audio is unpredictable, just like life. We're going with the flow. It's all about creating something rich, colorful, and delicious, even when we're surrounded by limitations. Today, on The Food Podcast. Before the world shut down, before we were quarantined, before travel plans were put aside, I found myself on a plane watching A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the movie where Tom Hanks plays Mr. Rogers. There's a scene in the movie where Oprah, in real life, interviews Mr. Rogers and asks him, what do you think is the biggest mistake parents make when raising children? Not remembering their own childhood, says Mr. Rogers in his clear, gentle way. M.A. Wimbush Burke has a bright yellow rowboat called Buttercup. It comes out when the ice melts on the lake and it's warm enough for a row. She usually packs a brunch for two, yogurt parfait, fresh berries from the market, and a thermos of coffee. She launches it from the dock in front of her house, a house she shares with her husband Danny and their three children. They moved to Nova Scotia a few years ago from Montreal, where M.A. began her career as a chef in high-end dining, then shifted gears when kids came along and began blogging and writing cookbooks. They liked their life in Montreal, but the East Coast was calling. They wanted a simpler life, a slower one, one like her childhood in the Yukon. I was invited to M.A.'s house for coffee last spring while her parents were visiting from the West Coast. I've known M.A. through her blog, Simple Bites, and her cookbooks, but I didn't know much about those Yukon days. In fact, I know little about the Yukon at all, the sparsely populated, most westernly of the three Canadian territories, 
with its glacier-filled lakes and mountain peaks and caribou and bright aqua-colored rivers. And I've always loved parents. I ask a lot of questions. I want the whole story. So as we sip coffee, I took up my microphone and got the story behind this new friend of mine, a quietly capable woman who seems to have been scratch cooking, developing recipes, fermenting foods, and keeping sourdough starters since childhood, and casually folding these skills into her bright, modern, colorful life. So we're going to jump into the conversation here, where they're describing the drive to their home, a home with no electricity, no phone, no running water. All right, so we're 40 kilometers from Whitehorse, the capital city in the Yukon. We're about to turn onto a gravel road called Horse Creek Road. There are no power lines and no phone lines, just six kilometers of nature. I imagine it as a subarctic little house on the prairie of sorts. You would pull in and there'd be this, this kind of two-story house which sort of anchored the homestead. And rabbit hutches were down by the water and a little goat barn with about five goats and a pen, a fenced-in pen, because there were a lot of wild animals, everything was fenced in. And a big sprawling garden and a greenhouse, because everything has to get started in the greenhouse because the, se- the growing season is so short. And then the property kind of just sloped down to the water with a beautiful gravelly slope and then... You know, everything was lake. So we spent most of our time just on the lake shore. The lake was so big, it's a 70 mile long lake. It's a presence. The Yukon has a latitude of 60 degrees north of the Earth's equator. I called MA's home a subarctic little house on the prairie of sorts because the Yukon is subarctic. In December, daylight lasts for just six hours and temperatures drop to minus 40 Celsius. In June, it's nice and warm, more like plus 30, but the sun sets at midnight and rises again a few hours later. They call it the land of the midnight sun. M.A. shared a room with her two sisters, but their house was designed in a passive way to capture the light and warmth of the sun. My bedroom had seven windows, like five of them lake facing. And it was just always, always, always tremendous light. But honestly, I didn't hang out in my room much. I was, I was always outside. I was always outside, no matter the weather. We would, I would be allowed to just take my food down to the water. Sometimes I would just take my plate and climb into the canoe and just push off for a few feet and just eat my dinner in the canoe. Summer sounds dreamy, but the winter? Imagine Emma and her siblings doing their chores. When I was little, my sisters and I had a rotating list we shared, well, or fought over. Folding laundry, cleaning the bathroom, setting the table, washing the dishes, and in winter, shoveling the sidewalk. M.A., she got up at six to milk the goats. I asked her to take me there, an early morning in April. Listening back, I sound as though I'm talking to Laura Ingalls herself. But M.A., she is casual about it all. It was just her life, a life she loved. So spring would have been when we would have been milking goats. So very much in keeping with the seasons, the goats would have had their babies. So that means we would have been a milk cycle. And I would be the milkmaid, the goat herd girl. I can still think and, and take myself back to the barn 
the colds just kind of kicking in the door. You know, the goats, they are just, they just dying to be milked. <laughs> and, um, and I love goats. They were, they're fun, just playful creatures. Very simple, they just really want food. Breakfast was kind of, we would kind of all pull it together with someone making toast, another one setting the table. And, and then we'd sit down at, um, at our big oak farmhouse table and just share a meal that was nearly entirely produced or grown on our own. Emma's mother made goat cheese and yogurt. But I wondered, where did they keep their dairy? My friends have an old cottage on a lake with a refrigeration shed down by the water. It was designed to store huge ice blocks from the lake. Is this what we're talking about? So we had no refrigerator, but, you know, eight, nine months out of the year, that's not really a problem because uh, it is the Yukon. But yeah, so the kitchen floor had a trapdoor. You would pull it up and there was a pit, I don't know, eight feet deep, just like cold, dark earth. We had a pulley system with buckets and that's how we would keep our milk and, and sort of a few things cold down there. So so I had a younger sister, seven years younger than me, and she had an imaginary friend down there, Itty. <laughs> so when we would lower up and, and down the milk, she would she would be on all fours. <laughs> having a little chat with Itty down there. And uh, I don't know why. I mean, that's one of the things that sticks with you. It doesn't sound so far off. Laura Ingalls's toy was a corn cob wrapped in a handkerchief named Susan. Emma's father, John Wimbush, is an artist originally from England. He built the house with Emma's older brother, Emma's mother, Zoe, grew up in a Ukrainian family on a farm near Winnipeg. She was also an artist and a teacher. And at this house, she was the chief gardener. The two both studied art in London, England, but they didn't meet until later, until Zoe was selling her jewelry on the sidewalk in Vancouver. When I finally got to meet her, everybody said, oh yeah, you two are meant for each other. <laughs> they got married in Seashelt, BC. Their cake was filled with organic fruit and nuts from a health food store. Zoe made it. This was the hippie wedding. Yeah. Well, we just wanted all our friends to come and they were, they were into a different lifestyle. John and Zoe moved to Winnipeg and not long after, they had a religious conversion. Both wanted to live a simpler life one without material things. So they joined a group of like-minded families and traveled first to BC, where they started a family and homesteaded for seven years, and then further north into the Yukon. I asked them if living off-grid, where the grid doesn't even exist, did this have something to do with their faith? Well, a lot of the focus, I think, stemmed from our, our religious conversion, which emphasized uh, a higher way, right? A higher calling and stuff. So that was the major focus. We thought we were doing something that was higher than, than societal norms were. I asked if John's parents were religious. Did he grow up this way? No, no, yeah, no. My folks were pretty heavy into the pagan trip. Money. Yeah, money. <laughs> Mammon. Mammon in Hebrew means money. Of course, the Wimbushes needed some money to live, but raising a family off-grid shifted priorities away from the material world. This notion 
shifting priorities is so timely right now as we, a global society, are in isolation. The economy, our jobs, the way we move throughout life is currently on pause until the COVID curve flattens. Living this way takes skills. Building a community is important. Planning is important. Hard work and innovation. It's like Amé and her family have been preparing for this all their lives. You know, my mother was a prairie girl, Ukrainian, from a Ukrainian family, so they always canned their own food. They were farmers, very simple. Saving the seasons and canning and preserving the harvest, that's what everyone did back then. I'm just fortunate that she passed that along to us. Some of my earliest food memories are canning stone peaches, or drying apples, more fermenting pickles, that sort of thing. Because yes, yeah, we, we relied on that a lot in the Yukon. The nearest store was probably 25 miles away. So we had to do all those things that are sort of coming back now, like batch cook and menu plan, you know, make a plan because, well, we couldn't just pop out and, and pick up what we needed. This way of life has been the norm for MA. And because there were limitations, no small appliances, just mixing bowls, cheese-making equipment, canning equipment, knives and cutting boards. She learned how to do things differently at an early age and to make substitutions. In the kitchen, I never really felt like anything was lacking, that's for sure. Where I felt more of like a lack was because I explored a lot of cookbooks. So I wanted white sugar, I wanted white flour, I wanted icing sugar, because I love to bake. <laughs> They were just simply not an option. So if we wanted to bake something sweet, we usually used honey or carrots or beets or something like that. Which is interesting though, because I've been recipe developing for 30 years now because I had we had to make do. <laughs> Learning how to just figure it out. That was all part of MA's mother's homeschooling plan. Her strategy was to just let her kids follow their interests, their gifts. Yeah, we wanted them to be unique and follow their own strengths. So when we homeschooled, if, <laughs> it was funny because, well, we saw if somebody, a child is good in math, then we let them excel in that because then they would feel good about themselves because they could do well. Heidi, our daughter, she loved languages. So she learned Spanish and French, and, but Josh was not interested in language. We let him have the goat business and we bought our milk from him and he bought the hay and did all the books and looked after it to make it, make it profitable. And that's what he enjoyed. And he later became an electrician. And then May was doing the cooking. So we gave her the pie cookbook. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder about that because I think there was a plan because John liked pies. These slower, quieter days have made me notice what I lean towards when the usual distractions aren't here. I'm sinking deeper into books and savoring our dinners. They're the focus of the day. I'm giving thanks when the sun shines in our backyard. And of course, there's time with my boys, the good, the bad, and the lovely moments and my phone. It's stepping in as a link to the outside world, but I'm on it way too much. But I notice when I put it away, I write. 
I kept a diary when I was little. It's where I made lists of new names for myself because I didn't really like the name Lindsay. And it's where I recorded like dream occupations. <laughs> but most of the time, I wrote about my life, my days, the food I ate, and the people who inspired me. And here I am doing the same with this podcast. It's what I've always leaned into. And for MA, it was baking. It's always been. From a very young age, my parents definitely encouraged us to be entrepreneurial and to, you know, if we enjoyed doing something, just to go with it. I loved baking, so they would help us get to market on Saturdays, so we would set up our own little family farmer's market. Uh, my dad painted us a sign called the Daisy Bakery. <laughs> and yeah, my sister and I, we'd bake, we'd get up very early. Um, it would still be dark, and we would start bagels, um, butter tarts, breads, just whatever we, we love to make. And uh, my mother sold bedding plants. My brother sort of was the animal husbandry in the family, so he would have usually rabbits, a couple kid goats once in a while to sell. So market morning, um, we'd ball pile into a big, big suburban, and um, there'd be trays and trays of baking on our lap. There might be a couple kid goats in the back or on my brother's lap. And it was a bumpy, because we lived on a four-mile gravel road first to get to the highway, so it'd be this bumpy, bumpy ride in. And then, <laughs> but we did it as a family, and you know, it was really fun. So our, our booth was always very, very lively <laughs> and, and, and smelled very good. It sounds like their home was lively as well. Something you wouldn't expect from a home on a 70-kilometer lake in the Yukon, a territory with a population of just 40,000 people. But knitting together community was how they lived, and so much of it took place on the lakefront, hosting barbecues or skating parties, or sitting around the big oak kitchen table, serving tea from John's parents' Royal Dalton China, to friends or to a hitchhiker that John had picked up. But the food wasn't always as fancy as the china. I always wish my mother would buy Oreos like my best friend's mother did, or slice white bread. Our homemade bread was so earthy. I asked M.A. if she ever felt this way. I had the happiest childhood. I never felt like anything was lacking, but as I sort of matured and became a young teen, there was definitely certain interactions with my friends that showed, okay, maybe we're a little more food insecure than I had ever imagined. So I had a friend over for a play date, and it was the middle of the afternoon, and, and I was like, oh, I'm hungry, you know, let's fix a snack, or, you know, let's see what we've got. And as usual, we didn't carry much of snacking foods. If you wanted snacks, you'd go pull a carrot, or you'd, you know, see if there was any homemade bread left over. And I have always loved the comfort of polenta and cornmeal, and actually my kids still do to this day. So I grabbed a pot, I said, oh, okay, we'll make, we'll make some, some hot polenta, we'll put some butter in it. So I fixed us two bowls of, of hot polenta, and she scoffed at it, and, and she really kind of laughed at it, and it was like, this is, this is like a, s a snack. And I just remember being stung, and then just realizing, okay, in her eyes, you know, cooking something from scratch or not just grabbing a package, this might not be the norm of what other teenage kids are doing. M.A. was ahead of herself. 
We could all use a lesson, especially right now, on how to make a warm snack out of practically nothing. The zero waste movement now is all about using your scraps. And, you know, there's chefs in fine dining restaurants who are creating menus specifically around the food that's wasted in the kitchen. And there's there's even a cookbook Mm -hmm. theme now and a trend on using your scraps. So we would go to, um, it was kind of like the the grocery store, independently owned. And uh, my dad would go to the back door and said, hey, do you have, you know, scraps? We've got goats and we'll take them off your hands. And so they would come in big banana-sized boxes. We would go through them first and see what was salvageable because as you know, ugly fruit, as people call it nowadays, you know, if it was, if it had a blemish or something, they would, they couldn't sell it. So they would go in the box and sometimes it'd be a box full of beautiful peaches, Okanagan peaches. And, other times, uh, you know, lettuce and tomatoes. and So we would go through that first for us, and then in the rest would go to the goats. Emma's blog is called Simple Bites. Simple is a relative word, but knowing her now, I see it means not fussy. It means creating meals from real food, food that might be humble or bruised or destined for animals. It's how you share it that counts. I love the word hospitable. To me, the difference between hospitality and entertaining is the emphasis on the guest instead of on you. Instead of you, the host, and your pretty table and your menu, it's when the focus shifts to the guest and their needs and their comforts and making them feel welcome. So often, making people feel welcome has nothing to do with the food itself. I remember a woman telling me that she was once invited to our house for dinner. I think I was a teenager at the time. She said she came to the door and my mom was surprised. She hadn't expected her. The house was a mess, but she was invited in with a smile and was nestled onto the sofa between my youngest sister and our cocker spaniel. The wood stove was on. In what felt like minutes, my mom had made biscuits. She says she's never felt more welcome. Okay, I'm off to rummage through my freezer to take out last summer's questionable frozen rhubarb and to make a cake with it. I'll share it with my neighbors and I'll pass it over the fence because as Julia Tertian says, why not? They won't mind that the rhubarb was a little freezer burnt. It's the passing of the food that matters. The lake in front of M.A.'s house is slowly thawing It's that awkward time in Nova Scotia between skating parties and brunches in Buttercup, her yellow rowboat. Either way, everyone is isolating, so chances are M.A. is out hiking with her family with a picnic in tow. This life is a milder version than life in the Yukon. There aren't any goats or rabbits in the yard, and M.A.'s house has all the modern conveniences. But the essence of her childhood is there in spirit, in the sounds, and in the flavors. The very first time that the lake froze like glass and I had my three kids out there and, you know, it was getting dark, the moon was coming up and we were just skating our hearts out. It was very emotional for me because even just that sound of skates on on, on like pond ice brings me back to my childhood. And I hadn't realized how much I wanted my children to experience that as I had experienced until it happened. And then I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, we're here. We're, we're here. It's, it's a full circle.
M.A., thank you. And to your parents, John and Zoe Winbush, for sharing your stories with me. You can find M.A. at www.simplebites.net or on Instagram at M.A. Burke. That's A-I-M-E-E-B-O-U-R-Q-U-E. And thanks to my great uncle, Larry Brownlee, for sharing his favorite food memories when he was young. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Food Podcast or on Instagram at Lindsay Cameron Wilson or at lindsaycameronwilson.ca. In any of those places, please let me know if you call the oldest person you know and ask them what they loved to eat when they were young. You can find all the details from this episode on our show notes at thefoodpodcast.com. And as always, thanks to Luke Badio, our producer and sound engineer, who's working remotely right now, and to Jen Grant for our theme song, One More Night. I'm thinking of all of you. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 